Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema, and this week is 1910. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Elley. I'm a unemployed film projectionist, and joining me as always is... <laughs> I'm Glenn Covell, a moderately employed film editor and filmmaker. <laughs> <sighs> We've made it into the tens, the teens. Yeah. Um, Finished our first full decade, I guess. For our first unadulterated decade, yeah. Right. Um, it's a lot of first episodes. Fifteen ye- first 15 years. Yeah, it's a lot of episodes under our belt that um, uh, that no one's listened to, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you never get listeners until the 100th episode anyway, so we're, we're, you know, we're fine. <laughs> We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you all in uh, 1995. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about Batman Batman Forever. Batman Forever, yeah. Um, <laughs> Batman Forever really pulls in the audience. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be the thing that really kicks kicks it off. That really We really break through. We're, we're coming for you in two years, Forever Heads. <laughs> Not Batman fans, Forever Heads. Yeah, People, yeah. They only like Batman Forever. Of course. Tommy Lee Jones? Is that the one with Tommy Lee Jones? It is the one with Tommy Lee Jones. Okay, that's I Can't Sanction Your Buffoonery, the movie. <laughs> Correct, yes. Okay. I haven't actually seen it, but I am... I, <laughs> you I, just know the good I BTS love stories. I love that story. It is. It's, anyway. it's amazing. Um, How you doing, Glenn? What's going on? Um, Not much. It's There's a lot of snow here, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I'm not going anywhere because of the ongoing global pandemic. And so... Um, which one is that? Uh, you know, it's the whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's it's nice just having mountains of snow around to look mm-hmm. at and build igloos out of. Uh, yeah, I got I got an MRI because of my weird headache last last week. I had oh, like a, I had like a terrible headache that didn't go away, and uh, my doctor was like, "You might want to get an MRI." So I got an MRI. There's nothing wrong. It's fine. Uh, uh, but now I got a CD, a take-home CD that has all my funky brain pictures on it. What? Like I can Did see the inside of my brain. That? They don't. They don't tell you. But I asked, and and they said, "Oh yeah, come back in a couple days. We'll give you a CD." And <laughs> that's like the the secret menu if you know to ask. Yes, an MRI animal style. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my sister's gotten MRIs before, and she was, like, so mad. She didn't realize that they could give you a CD. Wow. And I was like, you just gotta ask for it, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, it's kind of weird scrolling through, like, your actual brain um, in, in photographs. Uh, yeah, I bet. Very, very strange. <sighs> that is, that's crazy. Uh, well, now I know, if I ever get an MRI. Yes. Remember to get the compact disc, CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Remember to splurge for the the deluxe package, the VIP, <laughs> the VIP MRI. Yeah, TM. Uh, well, uh, oh, I didn't even explain what we what we are. Uh, as I as I said in the intro, we're a film history podcast. Uh, we're talking about extremely old movies, and so if you're on YouTube right now, hello, you can see our face, and that you can also. Uh, watch along as soon as we start talking about the movies we'll put them on screen and uh, you can see them along with us if you're listening out there in podcast land um, you can uh, find a handy playlist in our video description and or our, our audio description and 
it <laughs> that works and uh, you can watch the movies beforehand or watch along with us while you listen to the podcast very handy um so we like to start off every week with a little bit of historical context of uh, what's been going on in the year uh, that we're watching these movies so glenn why don't you give us the news of the year 1910 the news of the year 1910 The first radio broadcast to the public hits the airwaves. New Yorkers get to hear live performances of Cavallero Rusticana and Pagliacci straight out of the Metropolitan Opera House. A fire during a barn dance in Okurito Fulposh, Hungary, kills 312. Haley's Comet crosses our skies, not to be seen again until 1986, the year Top Gun comes out. The Empire of Japan expands and annexes Korea, only to be relinquished in 1945. Montenegro establishes as an independent kingdom. Advances in photographic technique. Professor Robert Williams Wood invents infrared photography. Eugene Eli launches an aeroplane off a ship for the first time. The USS Birmingham becomes the first aircraft carrier. Revolt of the Lash. Sailors on the dreadnought Milagerais off the coast of Rio de Janeiro mutiny against the harsh whips of their superiors. The Brazilian government steps in and settles the standoff on their favor. And that was everything that happened in 1910. Nothing else. Nothing else. Boring year. Um, <laughs> we don't know. No offense to anybody who was alive in 1910. Mm. Uh, well, uh, I guess we might as, start, might as well start with D.W. Griffith. Our guy. No, no, he's not our guy. Not our guy. Jesus. No, no, Jesus. sir. God. Ugh. I'm so used to... <laughs> You're so, I'm so used, used to talking to... about George <laughs> Melies, who is our guy. Oh, my God. How dare I? How dare I? Um, yes. D.W. Griffith, not our guy. We do not... I do yeah. not... You do not gotta hand it to him. No. Uh, we do not condone nor endorse any of his films or views. God. Anyway... George Melies at this point is taking a break from we, filmmaking. We cannot sanction his um racism. <laughs> Correct. George <laughs> uh, Melies is taking a break from filmmaking this year to work on stage stuff. Uh, he's going to be coming back next year working for Pathé. Um, his company is kind of going to be under uh, some harsh straits. Uh, but for now, our guy has to be D.W. Griffith, the regrettably, horribly racist man. Um, what do you want to start out with? Um, I mean, I think we should just, just you know, rip the Band-Aid off, talk about oh. his, his trilogy of Civil War films. Okay. Um, yeah, we were, we were looking, you know, when, when Corner and Wheat came out, we were kind of thinking that D.W. Griffith might you know, have some restraint against his bad politics and some good politics. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's seeping in. It's well, he's, seeping in. he's coming from two places. Like if you, if, if you read his Wikipedia page, like I did, um, the, the great researcher that I am, um, he did come from like, a, a very poor rural background, which sort of explains his kind of political statement through corner and wheat of like, the man is is bringing us down with his expensive bread prices, um, right? You know the little guy is suffering because of these fat cats in in uh, wheat on Wheat Street. 
<laughs> um, but then the other thing is that his dad was a Civil War soldier, and uh, yep. probably told told the the young son some some awful things. I don't know. Seated, seated, terrible. <laughs> yeah, terrible. He, he, even for the time, racism into he, his. He had he has family history in the Civil War, so it makes sense that he would want to make a sort of loose trilogy of films about about it this year. Yeah, and I mean, to his credit, these three movies um, are not as openly pro-racism and pro-Confederacy as Birth of a Nation is. Yeah, uh, these are kind of deliberately he's working his way up to that. Right, right. He's trying to test the waters to see what's acceptable. Um, these uh, are are pretty even-handed. So these these three movies that we're talking about are. The House with the Closed Shutters, In the Border States, and The Fugitive. Fugitive 1910, not 1980, whatever. Mm. I think it's 90-something, but never mind. Sorry, shouldn't have have done something in front of the Harrison Ford expert of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, so so one of the things that I noticed at least about... uh, Let me see. House with the Closed Shutters is is... more about just one Confederate guy, but in the border states and the fugitive, we want to talk about that even-handedness. Mm. Um, both of those movies are a pretty similar setup uh, of uh, two primary protagonists being a, a, a Confederate soldier and a Union soldier, and I thought it was interesting how that cross-cutting that he uses as his stylistic his his specific flourish that he uses it's being used to kind of evenly portray the two sides of a war by cross-cutting between union and confederate uh which i thought was sort of interesting it's juxtaposing the two people and portraying them as uh as equals not not as one better and so i think these two movies are kind of emphasizing the whole like brother against brother uh uh tragedy of of uh, americans having to fight against each other and finding empathy with each other which is definitely not you know a movie that's all about lynching and everything yeah um yeah and that was that was uh sort of uh i guess slightly if not reassuring at least um like slightly comforting it's like oh he's not He's not gone off the deep end just yet. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, the neither of these, I think, really has a greater message necessarily, or sort of, like, real stance other than, like, war is tragic and death is bad. And, like, if we all just got to know each other a little better, we'd all get along, kind of. Um, that makes it, them sound probably a lot cheerier than they are. They're both pretty, like... Uh, I don't know, in, in the Border States is sort of a, like kid caught in the middle movie where mm-hmm. like the kid kind of saves the day at the end um the fugitive is a bit darker and kind of a, a bit more tragic i think yeah you know I've, I've been noticing that i can kind of predict the end of dw griffith movies because i just think of what is the darkest grimmest thing that could come out of the end of the story and that's that's what happens at the end of his movies <laughs> oh boy yeah kinda i mean the santa claus one from what was it last episode didn't go yeah. quite as dark as I thought it would, but right. it got close. Um, <laughs> the Fugitive, I think, 
is the kind of more successful of the two. I think it it kind of plays both. It kind of treats both uh, characters as more leads. I guess it kind of it felt mm-hmm. to me like a bit more of a of a kind of even handed like well structured uh, story with that kind of setup of like here's a soldier huh. on one side, a soldier on the other side. And one really interesting thing I think about the fugitive, and one reason why it might just feel a little bit more, just feel a little bit stronger, is that it wasn't originally written as a story about the Civil War. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was originally written by a guy named John Mac- McDonough, who was an Irish playwright, um, who wrote wrote about a an Irish rebellion against Britain, um, and. Uh, he was later executed after <laughs> an Irish rebellion against Britain. Um, so he definitely had uh, more troubles. He definitely had a take. You know, he had a pretty strong uh, <laughs> political stance on that. But I think, I think the fact that that is that that is getting transposed to a completely different setting and time period really is um, kind of helps the the kind of universality of this story, I guess. Yeah, I think with both of these, um, it is trying to go for something. It's using the Civil War because it is a war where where close people were fighting against each other uh, that, that he can use, right? Yeah. I don't think that it's trying to invoke any of the baggage of the Civil War in these movies. Um where what what these movies are about in the border states and the fugitive they're both about uh showing mercy to your enemies mm-hmm. and they're about um the 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 kind of horror wrought by people who are close fighting each other yeah um they're also very un like romantic war movies i think they're both about soldiers hiding to yeah. avoid getting killed like they're both about people who are just like just hide like i can't deal with this like i i'm not gonna fight i'm just gonna hide in someone's house uh or in a, or down a well because yeah like otherwise i'm just going to get killed immediately yeah briefly um, the fugitive by the way is about um uh a union soldier who is who what, what, does he kill the? Does he kill a Confederate soldier first? I think. That, I think so. Yeah. A, I think a union, he, um, a union group and a Confederate group clash. The Union soldier kills a Confederate soldier and uh, is on the run from the other Confederate soldiers. He ends up running into the house of the mother of the Confederate soldier that he just killed, and she, even though he's a Union soldier, shows him empathy and hides him from the the confederates chasing him she later finds out that he's the one who killed uh her son she grieves over her son and uh she thinks of turning him in but she thinks that it would just be another mother who would be coming home to a a dead son Uh, you know so it's it's not it's it is it, it isn't great as far as like how how or I suppose it isn't portraying war as great in any way. No. Um, and um, it's not... And it, it isn't using the baggage of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the the other one, though, The House of the Closed Shutters, I think, is a little... 
definitely I reacted to it very differently from the other two. <laughs> what was your take on that one? Um, well, this one is just straight, straight off the bat, like purely a story about the Confederacy. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, there's really a union presence in it. And it, it's much more kind of like jingoistic too. It's much less of a, I mean, it's still kind of a like weird, like tragic war story, but it has this whole thing of like the, there's a, a brother and sister who were down in their, you know, palatial mansion in the South. And the sister ma- sews a, uh, a flag and is very proud of it. Um, a Confederate flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the brother goes off to war, and everyone's all like, you know, celebrating him going off to war. And then he turns out to be a big ol' coward, I guess, and goes and hides. The, and, uh, keeping the theme of hiding during war. Um, and so he runs back home, and then the sister takes his uniform, takes his place, thereby making this movie racist Mulan. Um, um, and then she goes out to fight and like saves the flag that she made from the middle of the battlefield and gets killed, saving the flag from f- being on the ground. Um, flags are done. It's all kind of, yeah, it's all kind of representational. Um, and One then, other note, by the way, is that like he had a task that he was supposed to do and the sister, uh, to preserve the family's honor oh, from yeah, not, yeah. from not like having a coward she dresses up as her brother to finish this task and then she dies before she can come home and so then to to preserve the family's honor they just uh pretend that the son died and the daughter is so sad about it that she never leaves the house yeah meanwhile the son is living in the house with closed shutters so no one can see in yep and then like 25 years go by or something. I think there's an intertitle. <laughs> yeah. And then we we see all the same characters as like wretched old men and women. Like it's sad. Whatever the the intertitle was, it was like 10 or 20 years. It wasn't that long. It's 25, yeah. 25. And they go from like youthful young sprightly people to like 90-year-old <laughs> crones in 25 years. Um, I mean, if you if you live if you can never leave, I mean, I know this is a relatable feeling right now, but if you can never leave your house for twenty five years, uh, living with your parents, yeah. you could you could probably all turn um, to decrepit old crows. <laughs> and so then, finally, uh, the brothers' old old war pals uh, open the shutters and, and see him in there, and they're like, "Oh, yeah." Um, um, though though they're, they're his pals, but they're also the suitors to the daughter, right? They're being, oh, right. They're they're being they, they, rebuffed. They keep for coming twenty five yeah. straight years. They keep coming back advances. to the house, like maybe today she won't be as sad. <laughs> and so you, they, yeah, they go from young men trying to get get a last to um, to just like decrepit old simps oh, this... who, <laughs> <laughs> who who cannot leave leave well enough alone. That really should have been the title. <laughs> the house um, with the closed I don't know yeah the whole kind of like last third of it I thought played kind of comedically with like the mothers like trying to hide the cowardly brother from 
people coming into the house and things and like throwing sheets over him and things. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way you could see it as not comedic is if you are actually taking that honor code stuff seriously. Right, um, which is... Uh, I, I I think it is played serious. Like, it is very much... You're supposed to be like, oh, they... They can't. They can't. How dare they, he? They can't. He's lo- a deserter. They can't lose their honor. Um. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny. Like this one. Just watching. It, I'm just like, oh, this guy just loves the Confederacy so much. Clearly. And I. I don't. You know. I don't want to watch these with too much. I don't want to bring in my uh, knowledge of later <laughs> D.W. Griffith exploits too much. Of like, yeah, I know he was a big old racist, but I'm like, I'm trying to watch his movies somewhat objectively, yeah. and this this is the one that was just like, I can't do it. Like, this is so well, it's so also blatant. Like, boom, blackface in the middle in the beginning. That of too. Um, um, which honestly, I feel like this is like the first time. I mean, maybe it's because I know he's a despicable racist, but I feel like most of the blackface in the past has been stupid and like not not necessarily outwardly malicious most of the time at least um uh but in this time it's probably just like oh i don't want a black person on set you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah which which actually it struck me the blackface in this movie struck me as strange because it's so obviously fake right Mm. the 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 blackface yet dw griffith is going for this really understated realism most of the time but because he's so racist, he can't help but destabilize that realism by putting blackface in it. Yeah. No, it's 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 really uh it's really icky. Um and also the fact that this movie takes place in the South during the Civil War is like, that's a slave. He's not the butler, you know? Right. Yeah. That guy's not getting paid, nor is he allowed to leave. Um which the movie does not get into whatsoever. I no, mean, he's it, just it's a background not, character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it feels very much like that is downplayed and almost not even... It's, like, purposely not addressed. Yeah, I mean, it's not material to the actual story itself. Uh, it's just a an unfortunate um, side effect of <laughs> a movie about Confederates. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, the, I feel like the other two, I was sort of like, oh, okay, like, D.W. Griffith making, like, a surprisingly even-handed like civil war story that is like seems to kind of have some ideas about like war and conflict that aren't outwardly terrible yeah um and then house of closed shutters i was like oh there it is there's you know that's what i was expecting um Uh, by the way the guy that plays the coward confederate in this movie is henry b walthall um who is also the 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 honorable confederate in the border states. Oh, interesting. Uh, but um, he's going to be a bit of a of a D.W. Griffith mainstay, and he's going to play one of the major roles in Birth of a Nation. Mm. He uh, does. D.W. Griffith, I think, has been like reusing actors maybe more than other people we've watched. Yeah, at least as far as we can tell. Yeah, they sh- Wikipedia should make one of those grids that uh, uh, like, you know when those when directors reuse yeah. actors, but instead it'll it'll be a grid that's like four hundred yeah. columns long because yeah. it's D.W. Griffith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's like three hundred films that he made with Mary Pickford. Like, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, that would be, I would love to see that if someone wanted to do the work <laughs> to make that. Um, Get out there, nerds. Um, he made some other movies this year which were not as racist, thankfully, <laughs> um, which I enjoyed quite a bit more. Um, one of which was The Unchanging Sea. Yeah. Um, which Inspired I, by a poem, based on a poem, basically. Yeah, which I think um, I think that probably helped. Yeah, it gave it this kind of like a fanciful, kind of like grand story sort of feel. Yeah, uh, it's it's told over multiple generations of people. Um, and it's yeah, and it it it, it um it's shot out like outside in real locations, which which helps a lot. Um, it's surprisingly kind of subtle for I think a movie from this time period. Um, there's a lot of repetition of the same shots of like showing different times though. So we can, we're seeing like the same people return to the same places over and over again as they get yeah. older and things like that. Um, and it, it just has this very kind of like seaside, like wistful vibe, um, mm-hmm. which I was like, ah, oh, this is like, this is a nice change of pace. It's also, um, but it's also got that signature Griffith uh dourness i suppose yes yeah it's it's not it's not a terribly cheery movie even though it does uh, have a happy ending yeah um it's the kind of focal event of it is a is a crew of sailors who go out to sea wash up dead and uh the dad ends up missing uh, of the of the main character and uh you find her grown up she ends up marrying uh, a sailor and you're kind of afraid that the whole thing's gonna <laughs> repeat mm, itself yeah um but the the dad has been alive the whole time with amnesia amnesia <laughs> or uh he's succumbed to sea amnesia <laughs> oh no <laughs> the worst kind <laughs> um and something jogs his memory and he's able to go back home and reunite with his family many years later. And uh but yeah, it does have that very like wistful seaside vibe, which is nice. I, yeah. I like it. Um and yeah, lots of lots of very nice photography, I believe, courtesy mm-hmm. of of Billy Bitzer of of the sea and the 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 surf, the tides, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it shows the entire poem in the uh, title cards or, or intertitles. It's not entirely made out of the poem, but it it kind of re- goes back to the poem every once in a while. Uh, puts like four or five lines of it on mm-hmm. screen at a time, and uh, so it it uses that as the rough outline of the story. But then, uh, well, it kind of keeps going on from there. Toward the end of the poem is about the corpses that are laid out on the shining sands in the morning gleam as the tide went down and the women are weeping and wringing their hands for those who will never come home to, to, to the town. You know, that's, that's the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> he loves crying people, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's full of them. Um, um, especially this next one that we're about to talk about. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of tragedy. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Ramona. Yeah, my first note for this movie is such drama. <laughs> are you a Are you a Doge circa 2012? Correct. Um, 
it is it's based on a, a very popular novel from uh, a few years earlier um and uh it's i guess it's notable for I don't know if it's like the first. Well, it, it's one of the first movies to be shot in uh, California. American movies to be shot in California. Well, I think there were some some earlier independent movies that were shot in California. It, yeah, it is, it is not the first. It's not even the first D.W. Griffith movie to be shot in California. He made mm-hmm. one earlier in 1910 that I could not find anywhere. I think it's lost. That I believe holds the the dis- the distinction of being the first movie to be shot in Hollywood, like the Hollywood region of California. Oh, I think I I think I found that, but I didn't actually watch it. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah. Um but this is also like a very early California made movie. Um yeah. and I think what's kind of interesting about I guess both of them is that they're both stories specifically about California. They didn't just go out there to start making movies because the light was good. Right. Which was kind of always my assumption because the light there is very good. Um, it was more like, oh, no, we need to make this movie about old-timey California. Let's just yeah. go there and make it rather than shoot it here in Jersey like we're doing anything else. And I guess else. DW had that kind of sway that he was able to convince Biograph to fly him in his whole... Wait, it yeah. would be fly, I don't think they it? flew. I'm guessing yeah. they took the train. That, yeah. They'll have wow. been very cutting uh, edge if they flew. <laughs> very expensive, yeah. too. Um, we bought one of the two planes in existence. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, there, were, there were some other... The other movies that were... I mean, I think the initial movies that were shot in California were people who were running away from Edison and the Motion Picture Patents Company, the whole Edison Trust. Mm. And they were they were going all the way to California to try and get steer clear of his lawyers so that they could make movies in peace over there. Um, but that was a story for another week. Yeah. Uh, Ramona is a sort of tragic romance love triangle situation, which we're going to be seeing a bit more of later in the episode. Yeah, there's um, a lot of love triangles this year in film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, roughly, it's like uh, there's a woman who... Uh, there's a Spanish woman who falls... Or a Mexican woman, I guess. Well, who f- I think... I was trying to figure this out because it's kind of... Uh, and I think in the in the book, she's half Scottish, half Native American. In the movie, I think she's half Spanish, like from Spain... Yeah, and half Native American. Oh, oh, okay, all right. Well, she doesn't actually know that she's Native American because she's yeah. adopted. Um, she uh, falls in love with a Native American man who is also played by Henry B. Walthall, uh, who is white, um, and he, uh, uh, his his mo- her mother dis- uh, disapproves. Is that a word? Disapproves. Yeah, sure. Alcoves. Um, um. <laughs> It uh, she she doesn't she doesn't approve of their relationship. She wants him. She wants her to get with this other guy. Uh, they run away, um, but uh, in the process of the the early part of the movie, this Native American man's hometown is burned down by racists. Um, and this is actually a movie that is pro Native American. You know. Uh, uh, I don't know, independence and and, what, and 
what's the subtitle? Of, what's the subtitle of it? It's like oh my god, Ramona colon like the story of the uh, the Native Americans' persecution by the white man or something like that. Yeah, a story of the white man's injustice to the Indian. Yeah. And this was one where I was like, DW, I thought you were, like, big racist on campus. Yeah, yeah. I That was a little baffling to me, too. I guess he likes Native Americans, uh, but does not like black people. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> um, um, it should be noted Mary Pickford plays the lead, Ramona, in this also. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, they run away. Yeah. There's some really nice outdoor photography. Um the uh, of the uh of the mountains in the in the background like yeah. this is the reason that they were trying to be here in california was to get these these kind of gorgeous outdoor shots it is kind of actually like a little washed out i don't think the cameras could handle the entire landscape you know like they they had the people in the foreground uh who were lit fine but then like and then like the a bit of the landscape looked okay but then there were mountains in the background that looked like pretty washed out um, I'm I'm curious if they were washed out or if they're just overexposed. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I Could didn't been know that those too. are different things. This well. is <laughs> this is why I'm on the show um, <laughs> to, to, to nitpick film stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I don't want to pigeonhole you like that. Um, um, I also yeah I I also definitely took note of the like there's some really nice landscape uh, cinematography. Um, um, it's really nice staging. But for, like, the second half of the movie, basically, the two of them are just on the run from racists, pretty much. Um, and they, they, they keep have, trying to settle down, and then a bunch of racists come and, like, drive them guns away. guns at them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they have a baby, and in the process of them running away, the baby dies um, in a title card called The Baby's Death. <laughs> and they're... Uh, it shouldn't be laughing. It's very sad. I mean, people laugh at dead baby jokes, and I think dead baby jokes that are uh, 111 years old, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, they, they kind of mourn over the baby, and I, it's pretty good acting. They're, they, they are sad. Yeah. Uh, sad as heck. Um, this, and, this Mary Pickford gal is really going places. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then... Um, some more some racists come up as and kind of point guns at them even while they're just mourning over their recently dead baby uh but uh her her old her 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 the guy that her mom was trying to get her to get with ends up uh saving saving her uh as the as her her love dies yeah, and that's a DW. Griffith well, her movie her, for you. her love is like driven mad by all of by grief. Oh, that's from that's the dead right. baby. Yeah, and yeah. is like wandering the woods, and then just gets murdered, like randomly by some wandering racist. <laughs> Probably had a lot of those back in the day. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Very. Another very, very sad, very dour film. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think. Uh, I think when D.W. Griffith is working off of some like a pre-existing work, the films tend to be a little bit stronger. I'm noticing, huh? Um, you know, I will actually say that you, you know you were saying that um, the Fugitive was stronger, but I, th- I I liked In the Border States. It had a more of an emotional angle to it. Mm. Felt like it was more empathetic. 
but I see. I, I can see your point. Um, uh, you know, was that what else was <laughs> based on a book? Was Birth of a Nation? Um, um I uh, I do think like watching watching Ramona. I made me think about. I think the the single biggest thing that I think makes D.W. Griffith's movies, at least the ones that we've watched, uh, sort of rise above many of the others that are being made at the same time, is I think even more than the cross-cutting editing stuff is just moving the camera closer to the actors. Which, yeah. I mean... It's he, so nice. It's he, so nice He can't take credit for shot. that because, like, a lot of other filmmakers are doing that around the same time. Like, it's becoming more and more of a common thing. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, but... That's like the biggest takeaway from movies from 1910 as opposed to like 1907 is you can see the actors' faces much more clearly. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, makes it makes a, such a big difference. It helps so much with reading the emotions and just actually getting into the movie. Yeah. Is being able to see what the actors are doing, uh, and it means they don't have to be as broad with their acting either. Um, one other one that we can touch on for a bit is called White Fawn's Devotion, which holds the honor of being the earliest surviving, at least, movie that's directed by a Native American. Mm-hmm. Um, although it doesn't actually portray the Native Americans in a very great light. Right. Uh, especially compared to the racist who, who who directed Ramona. If you had shown me both these movies side by side and said one of these is directed by a infamously racist director and one is directed by the first native american director i would have guessed the opposite of which films were which yeah um this is also a weird movie that is the first film directed by a native american director and it's it's french it's a pate yeah. film it's one, yep. one of not their first but one of their first that was produced in the states yeah, Pathé was getting a little criticism for their westerns not feeling authentic enough. and So, so they went to New Jersey. <laughs> so they went to New Jersey, yeah. They went, uh, yeah. But at least they, they grabbed a, a Native American and gave him uh, gave him the reins to the yeah. camera. Uh, um, to make a... Uh, it's, it's all right. Maybe. I mean, it's mostly just a chase film, and it... It's not... I, I don't think it's a good film, because the entire core like drama of it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's based on this like misunderstanding. It's like there's a a white settler who has a Native American wife who's played by the Native American wife of the director. Um and he gets a letter that says that he's got a huge inheritance and come back to the East Coast to come pick it up. And his wife is so distraught that she thinks he'll never come back. She stabs herself and uh, almost dies. The, the, the dad comes back and he is upset. He hold, he's holding the knife and, and has her dead body there, or seemingly dead body. The daughter finds him and then runs to the other Native American, the nearby Native American tribe people, uh, and, and says, My dad killed my mom. Go get him. <laughs> um, and so they chase him, and he uh, and shows then he, a, a... He, he shoots several of them while being chased. Yeah. And he committed actual murder in his escape from the yeah. false murder. Uh, 
so we know he's a good guy. Yeah. And um, they finally catch him. They have him strung up, and they're like, here, daughter, it's only right. It's poetic justice if you knife your dad in response. <laughs> uh, so they give her the knife, and they're just egging her on to, like, slit her dad's throat or something. Uh, well, they, then, they've tied a rock over his tied-up body, and she's supposed to cut the rope so the rock will fall on him. Oh, is that what it is? That's how I took it. I didn't even see the Which rock. Which is a pretty, a pretty diabolical just... way of, of killing somebody. Huh. I, did, I didn't even see the rock. I was a little confused there. Huh. Um, but his mom, or, or her mom, wakes up just in time and says, No, I'm alive. It's okay. I stabbed myself. He didn't myself. do anything wrong. I stabbed myself. And they're like weird uh, you <laughs> like still... all right <laughs> yeah they're like you still killed some of our friends so yeah. that, leave that never comes <laughs> up um, i think i think it comes up in the tone in which they they say like they exit the scene they're right? just kind of like, like get out of here yeah to, to just like god like we're yeah. so done with this just leave <laughs> yeah um so yeah it doesn't really it doesn't really portray i think the drama that it's trying to that well um some of the chase stuff is kind of fun yeah yeah there's like a scene where um he's rappelling down a cliff by uh, by a rope and then the guy chasing him cuts the cuts the rope to make him fall down uh harshly doesn't kill him though um uh i think i think this seems like as good a point as any to transition to uh more Good acting and high melodrama, but this time in Europe. Okay, you didn't want to talk about Frankenstein? Oh, no, we got to talk about Frankenstein. Of course. How did, okay. I, for- how did I forget about Frankenstein? It's Frankenstein. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll change the segue. Speaking of... Change uh, the segue. That, speak, speaking of uh, people that are kind of dead, but kind of not, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. This was the first yeah. Frankenstein movie. Yeah, yes. And according to many sources, the first horror movie. <laughs> I love how anytime anytime there's like a famous movie from this time period, someone will inevitably credit it as the first something when it is. This not. is this is the crux of our job doing this podcast yeah. is fact checking these fools. You know? <laughs> fact checking YouTube uploads of old movies. Excuse me, excuse me, guy from 2006 who uploaded this. This is not the first <laughs> horror movie. Far from it. Listen to our podcast and you'll know. <laughs> um, yeah, Frankenstein. They yes, made a Frankenstein a, movie. It, not just a Frankenstein movie, but a liberal adaptation of yes. Mrs. Shelley's famous story for Edison Productions. <laughs> <laughs> they were correct in that that uh, description. Um. I mean, it's it's very recognizably Frankenstein, for sure. I mean, it's about yeah. a scientist who brings a dead body back to life, and hijinks ensue. Um, yeah, but it, it does. It takes some pretty big liberties with, uh, with the Mary Shelley story. Have you read the book? I have not. I mm-hmm. very much want to. I've heard it's very good. Like I've heard it holds up extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have not read it. Um, it's also really interesting uh to watch to watch a mo- like the 1931 Frankenstein movie is so yeah. famous and so like iconic it is like 
It is so it's ingrained. It's defined the, the image of Frankenstein to yes. us. It is defined even beyond that. It is like the quintessential like horror. It's one of the like like three or four like pinnacles of horror film in terms of iconography. It's mm-hmm. like sure. Frankenstein with the bolts in his neck is like the most it is is so pervasive in in culture, you know? Yeah, true. Um and it's it's cool to see a movie that just that didn't exist yet. Like they didn't have that baggage of like we got to redesign Frankenstein to be like Yeah. They were just like, "No, we're going this is our interpretation of Frankenstein because no one's ever done it before." And it's so wildly different from anything else I've seen. Yeah, it's like a kind of um a kind of it's a sort of a zombified bear slash mummy slash uh, it's probably the hairiest frankenstein yes monster. yeah <laughs> he looks um, i mean he looks like mr hyde kind of but like zombified mr hyde yeah he's got like a big old head with a bunch of hair he's got almost like a hunchback he's got really long icky fingers um and just always looks crazy um the the monster yeah. creation scene is really cool. It's yeah, not, no no lightning in this. No one. lightning. It's just like, uh, I mean, I think the way that they shot it was that they built a sort of model of the monster, and then burnt it, and then reversed the film. Oh, is that what happened? And so you're seeing like smoke getting pulled into the body as it's f- like forming together. Yeah, and, like pieces which... of it are kind of flying back up onto it. It's pretty neat, and yeah. and it doesn't look. I was thinking that some element of it might be in reverse, but it doesn't look so obviously reversed that um, it, you can clearly tell what's going on. Right? Mm-hmm. It looks like a pretty interest, a pretty good effect. Um, and yeah, it's going for like sort of an alchemy thing. Like he pours all this stuff into a big cauldron yeah. and then like heats it up in an oven, and then you're you're it's it's constantly kind of going back and forth between him like peering into the oven and then showing his point of view as the monsters coming together and and being constructed. Yeah. It's more like those the um the 90s creepy crawlies oven thing that where you like you make spiders and worms with like the putty. Oh. I feel like I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Um <laughs> I love getting some weird 90s esoteric pop culture references in there. Hey, who said we're stodgy and yeah. watch old movies? <laughs> we talk about Sega games and creepy crawlies. <laughs> Comic um, zone. Uh, th- this was a movie where I think the intertitles were doing a lot of heavy lifting. Okay, but here's the thing that I have to say about the intertitles, though. They're doing a lot of heavy lifting, but I didn't have a problem with it. Because I felt like because of the extremely liberal use of of intertitles and how short the scenes were in between the intertitles, I felt like I always had a very clear idea of what was happening and and it had a really great pace because the scenes mm. were staying short. Um, it was like telling you, giving you a lot of information, showing you a scene with, a, I think, a good amount of visual information, then, then back and forth and back and forth. And... I mean, a lot of movies from this time, it's a little unclear what's happening at mm-hmm. certain moments. And I never felt that watching this. And I think that was because of the title cards, even if it was maybe a little much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think it, there's a there's a bit where um, 
Dr. Frankenstein um, is, uh, you see a letter that he's written um, to his, his betrothed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how he just signs his name Frankenstein, not like Victor Frankenstein or like, you know, it's just, just his <laughs> last name. It's like, it's Frankenstein, you know me. Um, he just goes by Frankenstein. I don't know, I find that very funny. I also um, like. I also the the first title card is Frankenstein goes to college, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like, I I know that the monster's name isn't Frankenstein, uh-huh, but don't uh-huh. tell me that doesn't that doesn't conjure up the the monster going to college yeah. in your mind, you know. Yeah. Um, there is one. There's a really cool shot with a mirror where Doctor yeah. Frankenstein looks in the mirror and sees the monster. Yeah. And, and and at other times it is a normal mirror, and they use mm-hmm. they they swap it out. I think with a a mat or a or double exposure, mm-hmm. so that um, the mirror is showing a twisted image on the on the other side. Very um, very cool. Yeah, I think the the single biggest difference between this Frankenstein adaptation and like every other version of the story is the ending, in which the creature is. Quote, overcome by love and disappears. <laughs> um, which is, I think, a much... It's taking a much more kind of, like, metaphorical uh, angle with it. Like, sort of f- treating the monster as very much an extension of Frankenstein's own mind or personality. And then it's yeah, like... It's, a, it... it's only by, like accepting love into his heart that Frankenstein can like banish the monster from his, from his heart, uh-huh. I guess. I don't know. And that's yeah. why, it, that's why it disappears. Um, that was my take on it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is kind of going for a bit more of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Cause it does specifically mm. say that the reason why Frankenstein turned out messed up is because of the evil in Frankenstein's heart. Right. Not because of um, an abnormal brain. Right picked up the wrong one um uh the other kind of cool thing besides the the trickery with the mirror is that um early on when they're introducing the mirror in the scene uh they're using it to display someone to show someone who's behind the camera uh which i mean honestly like it's pretty impressive when movies these days do that where he's having like so he's on the left side of the shot. Frankenstein's on the on the left side of the shot, and he is, uh, and the mirror is on the right side. And you see him kind of looking off camera to the left at his girlfriend, I think, who is to the left of the camera, behind the camera. But you can see her in the mirror, and so you're seeing both of them facing the camera, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but from different diff- different areas, which. Yeah, like um, I think uh, Midsummer did that, and I I remember going like, <laughs> "Oh, very cool, Midsummer! You got this cool mirror thing going on. I like it. Like you're showing two different people facing the camera, and yet they're facing each other because you got a mirror involved." Mm. And they did this in Frankenstein. I thought yeah. it was very slick. Um, Jay Searle Dolly really pulling out the the cool mirror shots. Yeah, uh, we were wondering what a solo Jay Searle Dolly would look like, and that's that's this, I guess. Pre- pretty good. Without- Without the shackles of Porter. Yeah. I, I didn't love Frankenstein. Um but it's it's I mean it's it's a cool movie. Yeah. Uh you know what I did love though? I loved Max Takes a Bath. Oh. 
the best. <laughs> this movie was so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's after watching this and um, another Max Linder movie from 1910, I'm really struck by how Max Linder movies are in- incredibly good. Like, hold up so well. They're very yeah. funny. Yes. Um, like, most other comedies that I, we're watching is, like, a couple of chuckles, like, oh, that was silly, or whatever. These are just, like, full-on, very funny movies. Well, that's um, the thing. I mean, this is the most direct predecessor of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Yeah. Who are two people who do really hold up comedic, mm-hmm. comedy-wise. Um, and, yeah, the, the, I think that these Edison people just didn't know what they were doing when they were trying to be <laughs> funny. But it's, like... Max Linder films aren't good because of any sort of, like, technical or artistic even, like, innovation necessary. They're just really well made. They're just, like, Max Linder's really good at what he does. We're going to come up with a funny scenario and have him do some funny things, and that's the end. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty tight. I can say that. Yeah. Um, uh, And they, along with other movies, are starting to use medium shots so you can see his face and he can mm-hmm. really ham it up properly. And Max takes a bath, some like close up shots yes, of a face. That's right. Yes. In, in wrote... a way that's not like a gimmick and it's just like, no, we're just going to cut to a close up so you can see his face better. As but it to... feels like a, it felt like a, a revelation. Yeah. I wrote it in all caps, a close up to show more. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean like Ramona had a couple shots that were like, Definitely closer to the actors than a lot of other 1910 movies. But this had, like, an honest-to-goodness close-up. Yeah. And so, the basic idea of the movie, by the way, I highly (laughs) recommend people check this out, um, is... uh, If you only watch one movie from this year, maybe Max Takes a Bath might be the the one to, to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it definitely definitely holds up pretty well. But uh, basically, he gets a bath, uh, d- like a bathtub at a store. He has to bring it home, and there's some good physical comedy with him trying to take the bath back to his apartment. Um, he has to carry it on brings... his back like a turtle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he brings it up the stairs and into his apartment, and I guess his apartment complex only has one like central spigot uh, where water can come from and you don't have running water in your house at all. So it's like, how am I going to fill my bath? He, um, uh, he gets like a big jug and starts bringing it to the spigot back and forth, trying to fill the bath one jug at a time. Uh, and he either like hiccups or twitches or something like that. And he he trips and drops the the glass and smashes it on the ground i mean the the whole reason why he's buying a bathtub is because he goes to the doctor because he has twitchy shoulders and the doctor tells him to take a bath ah um <laughs> it's so good so yeah he smashes the thing on the ground and he gives he he does a great reaction to it where like it's it's very funny when he drops the thing on the ground and he yeah uh, he's just like kind of holds it and goes like oh well you know forget it <laughs> so he starts trying to fill it with cups uh which yeah. is not he's, working he's got a cup and a decanter and he's <laughs> filling it with that and that's not working very well uh 
just t- filling a tub one cup at a time. So he has the bright idea to drag the cup, in, uh, the the tub, into the hallway where the spigot is and pour it straight into the tub. Uh, then he can't get it back in, so he has to take a bath out in <laughs> the hallway. Um, and uh, to avoid scandalizing his his uh, uh, other tenants, the other tenants in the in the apartment building. Uh, he ducks under, I guess, the dirty water. <laughs> um, I don't know why he wouldn't be able to be seen underwater, but he ducks under the water to hide when somebody passes by, and they just go, huh, a tub, strange, and uh, <laughs> and walk by. Um, but that's when the close-up is used, is to show him holding his breath under the water. Yeah, and then coming um, out and, you know, spitting water everywhere. Yeah. In comedic fashion. His, just his, his physical comedy acting of like getting into the tub and just like his his pure delight at being in a bathtub is is so <laughs> palpable and clear um it's great some other stuff happens too yeah the, uh, the cops come uh, and try to arrest him and so they bring they carry him in the bathtub all the way back to the police station <laughs> yeah he re- he refuses to get out of the bathtub and so they carry the whole bathtub, and because Max Linder's character is that he's this womanizer, he's sitting in the <laughs> bathtub being suspended by the police down the sidewalk, and he sees two ladies, and he's like, what's up, ladies? I forgot about that scene. That's like, that might be my favorite scene in the movie now that I, rem- I remember it. Oh, it's so good. Uh... And the cops, I guess, just kind of indulge him for a second because they just hold him there while he's chatting them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh boy. Good stuff. Good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, the other one we watched is Max's film debut. Yeah. Um, which is also very funny. Maybe not quite as funny, but also very good and has some. It's about him getting a job as a film actor. Um, and so it's kind of cool to see some like early filmmaking as portrayed by early filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. It's like showing the kind of production process of hiring an actor and getting them in their first movie. You see him having stuff dropped on him from a second story while a camp in a in a mock uh, 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 film. While you see the camera running in the background with the people turning it, the, um, the hand cranked camera. Yeah, um, and uh, the the people that he talks to in the uh, in the office are actually played by Charles Pathé, and uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I know that. Um, so like that, one of the executives is, is Charles Pathé playing himself, and the other one is uh, Lucien Nonguet, the the uh, I don't know how you say that, but the, the director of this movie and most Max Linder movies. Wow. Um, so, so they're playing themselves, and it's sort of a, it's supposed to be an autobiographical thing of him getting his mm. job. Uh, apparently, this was also the first t- time that they used they 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 used the title Max does this, and that oh, became okay. their their standard yeah. title for um, all of their movies. And some of the older ones were retroactively renamed to Max does mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and also, there's a poster in the background in the Pathé offices for The Hand That Laid the Golden Eggs. A big old poster. Whoa! I gotta go back and rewatch it now. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the same one that I used in the um, I used in the YouTube version of that episode. Oh, awesome. Yeah. 
Um, I guess I guess we have to talk about the sad ones now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess so. The, but oh, something else? Oh no, 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 no! They're they're sad, but very good. Yeah, I the think. the long, sad, and censored Danish films of nineteen ten. Yeah, so Denmark's really like starting off with I don't know what we what, what's best to talk about first. Um, um, yeah, I mean they they do they feel like they kind of go together pretty well. Uh, yeah. There are two Danish films that are both about like a little under forty minutes long. Yeah, I think you would call these like two two real films. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, I, I get the sense that a lot of these silent movies of this early era of, of variable lengths, they really go by the number of reels. And yeah. At twenty four frames per second, one reel is about twenty minutes. At uh, uh, sixteen frames, wait. Now I'm kind of confused. Mm. Because 16 frames per second, it should be more time, right? Maybe a a thousand foot reels. Um, Anyway, this is a little... That was a little too inside baseball. So, uh, a one one real movie in America, which they're restricted to right now because of the MPCC, is uh, about 17, 18 minutes or lower. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is double that. Uh, It's nearly 40 minutes, uh, both of these. Yeah. which the Europeans are not holding themselves to that kind of standard. Yeah, um, which it's definitely unusual, but I, I get the sense that one. I just got the sense that both of these came out the same year, and they're both Danish. That that was sort of a like Denmark was really kind of pushing the the longer film length, and some some brief perusing on on the internets kind of confirmed that too. I think that um, other filmmaking countries were like no no no, like 15 20 minutes that's good like that's the appropriate amount of time that a film should be and denmark was like no films need to be longer yeah and they were they were making these longer movies and it was a hard sell to theaters because they wanted shorter movies Mm -hmm. for quicker turnaround of people and more stuff that they could program and uh they uh, i think um i think the abyss uh was it was one of these two. I forget which. Uh, it they they kind of like leveraged their other movies and said like we're not going to give you any of our other movies unless you actually play this thirty five minute long Whoa. film, which seems super long, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the same kind of uh, uh, movie production studio uh, strong arming that would become illegal in the I don't know what sixties, uh, but they still do it. Yeah. They just don't say it. They don't make it official, but they still do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now with the what the the Paramount decree or whatever has been dissolved, I think that that's less of a. I don't really know what I'm talking about. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you should cut this out. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to it. But like, yeah, there was there was some kind of trust busting thing that happened in the 50s or 60s that broke the studios up uh, from also owning theaters right. and and it also prevented them from being able to block book movies uh by forcing them to forcing theaters to play bad movies if they wanted to give them the good movies right. but they still uh, do that anyway so they of... they still do that now even though it's explicitly illegal famously illegal in the in in like mm. film history uh they still do it they just kind of do it through insinuation they're just like 
yeah, you know, if you don't play this garbagey Disney movie, maybe you won't get Avengers. We'll see. You maybe know, the next Star know. Wars it gets lost <laughs> in the mail. We don't know. Yeah. No, that's literally how it is. Go, yeah, go, that go, is... go get Disney. Um. <laughs> Yikes. Disney, sponsor uh, our podcast. Jeez. <laughs> oh, anyway, these two movies are not very Disney-like. They are oh, no. uh, they're kind of grim, and they're beginning a genre that Denmark became famous for uh, in these next couple of years, erotic melodramas. Ooh. Um, I had not heard that term. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it seems they, accurate. Yeah, right? Um, <sighs> I guess let's... Do you want to just talk about The Abyss? Yeah. First? Um, pretty, uh, pretty like... I don't know what the right... I mean, it's it, it's longer and also, I feel like, has a very strong sense of... I don't know, like, the drama in it just seems a little bit hit a little bit harder for whatever reason maybe it's because just spending more time with the characters helped well you know what i was thinking uh, about was that more that a bigger movie allows them to sink into smaller moments Mm. uh where everything in in a short movie had to be broad and uh and get straight to the point you can really soak in the emotions a lot more in this movie um and i think it's um it's it feels like an actual movie, honestly. I was blown away by The Abyss. I yeah. thought it was fantastic. Um, I think other movies that have been this length have felt like a collection of scenes, right? They felt right. very, yeah. they felt very discreet. Sometimes, literally, they've been just a collection of shorter mm-hmm. movies put together into one long movie. Yeah, this feels so cohesive, and the. Um, the 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 shots and the scenes flow from one another so well so so well it 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 feels effortless and this is a first movie from this director yeah that that is pretty crazy that is, this is like one of the one of the definitely one of the better things we watched this year and i would say even one of the better things that we've watched uh overall may i don't i don't know about that but i i might say it i thought it was fantastic it's quite good um it's uh it is definitely like a melodrama. Yeah. Like it is definitely a sort of like very a lot happens in a very short amount of time still. Yeah. This this is this is another deadly uh uh love triangle movie. Right. But in in a in a very different way from Ramona. Yeah, oh yeah, certainly. Um roughly the movie is uh, that there is this woman who meets this guy. She's a piano teacher. Her name is Magda Vang. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's Dutch. Sure. Or Magda. no, it's not Dutch. It's Danish. Jesus Christ. Um, uh, so in a tram car in Copenhagen, um, she uh, meets this guy named Knud Svein, uh, and they fall in love. And uh, they, he invites her to his vicarage, which I assume is like some kind of cottage or something like that. Well, I think it's like a, it's specifically like a religious thing. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Where, I think I where, read somewhere where that a he's a pastor's lives. son. Yeah. Mm, right. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so they're kind of like hoity-toity, uh, but, you know, she loves them, but they're kind of like off- 
he's he's like off doing business and she's just kind of sitting there alone. I kind of I I kind of got the impression they were off like at church. But I could be wrong. Oh, and she didn't come with them? <laughs> yeah. Um uh, but there there is definitely this this sort of thing where like Knud meets Magda on the on the uh the tram. Yeah. And it's just immediately like, "Uh, a woman." <laughs> um <laughs> and then you know, but like they they get along and it's like he invites her to the cottage and she's like, "Great, I'll go." Yeah. Um, but I feel like I kind of get the impression, like, once she gets there, she's like, oh, like, this family is kind of a little... Kind of not my scene. Yeah, yeah, like, a little a little square for me, maybe. And so they leave, and she's just stuck at the house alone, and she sees a, a flyer for the, the circus is in town. Mm-hmm. The traveling circus. And she's like, love the circus. Gotta go to the circus. <laughs> um, and so she shows the flyer to Knud when he gets back. And he's like, circus, please. We're a we're a morally upstanding family. We don't go to circuses. Um, <laughs> but she convinces him to go. He's like, come on, like for me, let's go to the circus. Um, and Canute is dragged to the circus, um, where uh, Magnus starts dancing with some of the some of the the dancers, including this mm-hmm. this uh, this cowboy. Circus cowboy fella <laughs> named yeah. named Rudolph, uh, and Knud uh, is not happy about that. So Knud is like, "We're leaving. We're we're going home." <laughs> so they go home. There's a lot of jealousy in this movie. Yeah, they go home, but then Rudolph follows them and kind of gets into a fight with Knud outside the house. Um, oh yeah, Knud kind of like like says like, "Get out of here!" Yeah, like get beat it, beat it clown but so then magda goes upstairs to her room and rudolph climbs up into through the window yeah um and they just kind of start making out just right there which is all right okay um (laughs) and so then she runs away with rudolph to join the circus she's so taken with him and so opposite of taken with this square guy yeah um and it's it's at the circus where there's this long, like, dance centerpiece to the film, which is the reason why it got censored in so many other countries. Yes. And I'd read that beforehand, that, like, this movie was censored in in, uh, in Norway, I think, and Sweden. The U.S., um, too. Because of the erotic content. Um, and I was like, alright, 1910, let's see what Let's see what this <laughs> what this is. Um and I was like, "Oh no, this is pretty this is pretty risqué." It was far more risqué than I expected it to be. Yeah, I mean it's um it's uh so the dance is is portrayed from like a side view and you're seeing this the the stage uh that they're performing some kind of circus show, vaudeville type show. Um and sh- uh Magda uh, kind of ties up Rudolph with a lasso. She la- she grabs his lasso. She lassos him and then ties him up. Uh, and then she just kind of like dances around him and kind of like grinds on him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it goes on for a good while. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's quite it's quite racy. It's um yeah. At least I uh, mean, f- much more so than I would expect from any movie before. 
Uh, certainly any American movie, probably before, like, the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know how these Europeans are. Yeah, that's um, true. Um, I saw... Uh, so, so a lot of people were talking about uh, the, the actress who plays Magda, uh, Asta Nielsen, and her kind of just general eroticism. I think mm-hmm. that she got locked into roles in this genre of erotic melodramas, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, just kind of got to be this kind of figure anyway. In um, There was a, uh, a film critic in 1924 who was talking about her, and uh, she said, Asta Nielsen's spiritualized eroticism is demonically dangerous since it works at a distance through all of her clothes. Wow, um, which which more or less describes what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, that's a. I love the language of that sentence. Um, <laughs> I was bringing up a little bit about Aston Nielsen, and Aston Nielsen seems like she was very cool. Um, she later married the director of this movie, Urban Urban Gad, Urban Gad. He's just an Urban Gad. Yeah. Um, and they got about town. They, they co they moved to Germany a few years after this and f- f- co-founded a film studio there. Um, which she kept making films, uh, until the early 1930s, which at which point she retired kind of to do more theater. That was about when sound was starting to kick off. Um, and then it being the 1930s in Germany, uh, Hitler and Goebbels tried to make a deal with her to make propaganda films, uh, but she instead f- left Germany and gave a bunch of money to help uh, Jews escape the Holocaust. I was so relieved to read that because I was just thinking so much about D.W. Griffith and how he's garbage and <laughs> thinking, is anyone even cool from back then? Is anyone a good person from the olden times? And it turns out that she is. Asta Nielsen. Yep, she's the only one. Well, to f- to finish up the uh, the summary here, uh, uh, basically, there's like a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of back and forth of she can't really decide which man she wants. Uh, oh well, I guess I should finish up that scene actually, which is that Rudolph uh, starts macking on this other this other uh, dancer performer. Yeah, and she's just like. Where did this come from? You don't just randomly kiss people. That doesn't make it. That doesn't sound like you. Even though that is a hundred percent what he did when they met. So yeah. Um. So she gets all mad. She attacks the other dancer uh, while she's on stage, and uh, there's a whole big fight, and she and Rudolph end up getting kicked out of the circus. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, just t- trying to make make lies for themselves at like the artist's hotel. Which I guess was a thing in Denmark. Um, at which point they run into Knud again. By I think the the intertitle says like uh, a chance encounter or like a co- a coincidence or something. Yeah, they like run into each other again. And then she's gonna leave with Knud, but then Rudolph like seduces her again, kind of. Where it's just like, no, don't leave. I must have you. <laughs> yeah, she's she has she literally is convinced by the straight-edged guy and, like, packs her bags yeah. and is about to go. Then Rudolph just convinces her, 
starts smooching her get her again yeah. and she's like i can't i can't leave you you know i mean this is kind of a love triangle movie but it's it is very much a movie about a woman who's kind of caught up in an abusive relationship which is more of a i don't know it's like a a more complex topic i guess than i expected from a movie from this time period yeah and i think you know i uh, considering just the the dance that we talked about earlier and the kind of agency that she is trying to show in this situation um i think that it 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 gives you know for for a movie of this time it gives a move a, a woman a lot of interiority and a lot of uh sexual autonomy mm-hmm. um yeah for which, sure which is pretty cool um I do. I kind kind of got the impression I might be somewhat projecting of just like old timiness onto this. Um, that uh, Knud is sort of definitely meant to be taken as like the good, morally upstanding guy that she kind of should be with. I but, think the movie understands her running away from him, though. Yes, and I also it's the sort of thing where it's like neither of these two men are a good like romantic partner for this woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um like just Magda just wants to dance and like be happy and neither of them really are willing to let her do that. Um yeah. and I'm just like just let Magda dance. That's all she wants. Yeah. Um, and you can see that like the way we're talking about this. This is a very complex movie and a very like emotionally complex movie. Uh, for this time, I would say. Yeah. Um, and it, it ends kind of in a not terribly happy way. I'm trying to remember the specifics of it. Uh, well, so after they're kicked out of the circus, they're trying to scrape by by just doing performances out in the world. Um, uh, it seems to be implied that, that Rudolph is like drinking a lot and she is um having to help support that as oh, yeah. well. Um she's playing piano in a park uh and Rudolph's kind of hanging out there and she's she's performing with a band um for for basically like an outdoor cafe and it uh, ends up being that uh oh god what's his name? Uh Canood uh once again randomly appears and he sees her playing um and he gives the waiter a little card that says uh you know it's an old friend come and meet me at this hotel room and uh and we can talk and uh for a second for a second she kind of just blows it off she doesn't really want to do it I was reading a, a summary somewhere else, and it was saying that maybe the implication was that um, she thought that she was being like solicited for prostitu- prostitution, and she decided she didn't want to do that. Um, but then Rudolph like convinced her to go, um, so she goes kind of reluctantly. She goes into the hotel room and she sees Canood there, and um, he. Uh, she basically is like, great to see you. Please get me out of all of this, you know? There's also, I thought there was an implication in the scene in, like, the cafe, too, that uh, Rudolph was, like, like drinking up a big bill, and 
oh, uh, yeah, Magda yeah. ended up having to pay for it. Right. Um, oh, is that why he was convincing her to go talk to the guy, maybe? Um, I think so. I think that was sort of part of it. And Rudolph kind of follows her, like he tends to do, um, <laughs> into into the room after she's been there for a second. She's getting ready to run away with Canood. Rudolph come, breaks in, um, sees Canood there, and then pushes him out of the room and basically starts attacking uh, Magda. Um, and uh, she... Uh, it's... it's pretty harrowing scene it is it was like i was again a lot of things surprised me about this movie but that that too is like this is intense and kind of scary and upsetting yeah i mean you know it's kind of like a i mean uh if anybody is thinking of watching this and doesn't want to see something that kind of looks like a sexual assault then uh i wouldn't (laughs) um uh, she ends up stabbing him uh, with a, a knife that was on the table and uh, to, to get out of the confrontation. Uh, you know, it was someone who she felt love for. And so after she stabs him, she cries over the corpse. Um, the police arrive and she's taken away. Uh, she has this really dead-eyed look on her face. Like she's just exhausted mm. and, and just done with everything. Um, and then in a and, moment of awfully timed, unintentional comedy, the uh, the Danish word for end appears on screen. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for any English-speaking audience members, the Danish word for end is slut. Um, spelled the yes. same way. Yes. And so I saw that and I was like, whoa! You know, so I, I, I went to Denmark t- uh, two years ago and I... Uh, remember, I, I remember l- giggling at that when I saw the word end in Denmark and it exited my brain. And then all, all, all again, once I saw this movie and it said slut at the I end. I mean, it's, it's written in English right below it. So I, I quickly figured out what was going on and yeah. I like, I, I, I checked to make sure, but at the same time I was just like, Oh, didn't that, okay. That's a way to end the movie. <laughs> Jesus. Um, a little harsh, but yeah, great, great film. It, I think, I think the movie itself has uh, a lot of sympathy for for her, uh, even though the wider culture probably would look down on the character in the movie, and that's probably indicated by the one of the English titles of this movie is The Abyss. There's another English title of this movie, which is The Woman Always Pays. Mm. Um, which, I mean, I guess if I'm being really charitable, it's about her paying for Rudolph at the at the place. But I'm thinking that the idea is that yeah. she is paying the price for her ways of, you know, I don't know, infidelity and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, th- I think she's she's the intent of the movies to kind of portray her as like. Like free spirited, but almost I don't necessarily think the movie is like trying to blame too much of her predicament on that but there is a little bit of that sort of like she's too wild like yeah it's it's a kind of karmic justice ending um for you know someone who goes against the social order needs to be punished in a story you know yeah um 
but I think, like you said, it does, it affords her, I think, a lot more, like, agency than I think a lot of other films in this time period are giving female characters. Yeah. Or at least, I don't know, I, I, there's a palpable difference in the way that this character kind of behaves and is portrayed. Yes. And, um, uh, Asta Nielsen, she, I think this was either her first movie or one of her early movies. And, uh, she was kind of renowned for her, uh, very subtle acting, uh, which you can really feel in this movie. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the there's a lot of complicated emotions going on in in this film and i think she does a great job with it it's it's a lot more subdued than this kind of broad pantomiming that's happening in a lot of silent films yeah yeah um it is still i mean by any sort of modern standard it is still very broad and pan- pantomimey but definitely for this time period it's it's much more subdued and much just much better in general mm-hmm. um uh next one yeah um so uh the other erotic melodrama <laughs> from from denmark uh is called the white slave trade what which is, what a title that is uh, a little unfortunate um <laughs> it's uh uh i mean it's 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 trafficking no pun intended jesus christ in a um in a uh overused trope that is uh, of uh of you know a kind of racial threat of white women being enslaved um mm. uh, especially in 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 contrast to uh you know women of color yeah um, i am uh, curious but... how much of that is like an american thing like in europe was there that same kind of content i guess otherwise they would just mm. call it the slave trade yeah probably <laughs> um uh this is based on so this is this movie that that we watched is a almost direct knockoff of another movie called the white slave handle uh which is now lost uh but this kind of mimicked almost it mi- mimicked it almost shot for shot and it, it uh denmark didn't have copyright laws that applied to film at this time uh, and so they were like, it's the same movie, but with better actors. Yeah. Which is <laughs> is such a great like marketing ploy of just like, it's not illegal to just remake this shot for shot. So we're going to say that we did that and just say that we did it better. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think it's pretty good. Uh, uh, it, considering, it is pretty good. Um, uh, so maybe it's better than the white slave handle. Um, uh both of these are based on a book, by the way, by Elizabeth Shoyen that came out in 1905 uh, called The White Slave Girl, The 20th Century Shame. Um, and that is a book just about basically what this is, which is a, a white woman in Denmark uh, getting uh, duped into uh, uh, joining a brothel, basically. Yeah, um, in London. Yes, uh, she she accepts a job that seems a little too good to be true, but it involves like traveling. Um, and when she gets there, she gets locked in a room and uh, and is uh, you know that that whole situation. <laughs> uh, this movie was uh, banned in 
the U.S. because it portrayed a brothel, and they didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, it, this one, it was, I mean, this was the sort of thing where I'm like, oh yeah, this was banned in 1910 because it was 1910, and it was just like anything remotely having to do with sexuality it was like, no, 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 we can't have that. Yeah. Um, which was kind of what I expected from The Abyss. Um, this had nothing in it that I would really think warrants... I mean, I don't think the abyss warrants censorship, um, but this had has nothing nearly as risque as as uh, as the abyss. I don't think um, it's actually it's much more of a like thriller, like action film almost. Um, yeah, because it involves a, a like a, a very involved rescue and and her trying to sort of espionage her way yeah. out of this situation. The main sort of plot of the film is like once she's there she sends a letter she gets a letter sent back to her family in denmark and her i guess not husband i don't think but i guess you know fiancé perhaps uh he goes to london and hires a private t- detective and they they are like you know plot an escape and there's like a, a chase and she gets re-kidnapped and there's like a big rescue on a boat and there's fight scenes and um yeah i mean it's some heavy theming uh that yeah i don't think it deals with with the seriousness of the abyss um but no it's it's still, a, i think it's it's a much broader more straightforward story of just sort of like it is taking this very kind of heavy subject matter and then kind of spinning this almost like I hesitate to call it like an adventure story, but that is almost how it feels at times. Of just like, yeah, we gotta we gotta rescue you know the lady from ups, and it's like she has to like tie her things closed together and like go out the window. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole there's a whole car and horse and buggy chase, um, with them trying to escape. Yeah, this was another. Um, so this one was also about thirty five minutes long, uh, and this is a, a, a different critic uh who was remarking upon it i think like 10 or 20 years later who said uh who called it the first artistic film as a guide the printed program is unnecessary the rapidly shifting but carefully linked episodes speak for themselves and i think that speaks to what i was talking about earlier of these two movies feeling not like a big old collection of scenes but Mm -hmm. as actual things that that flow from scene to scene and they don't feel like these stale kind of um, yeah. shot, this happens, shot, this happens. It it just works like a real movie does. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm definitely very excited to see what, you know, what other Danish films come out in the next few years after this. Um, yeah. Because just based on these two, it seems like Denmark really knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. August well, Blom is the director of this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a name to, I guess, keep keep in mind going forward. Yeah. Um, and who knows if this was in the original movie, by the way. But this has a split screen. Were you about to mention it? I was, yeah. <laughs> you got there before me. Ah, I was afraid you were about to move on. So I was like, I gotta mention the split and screen. I was about to talk about the split screen. <laughs> what yeah. do you want to say about the split screen? It's very cool, because it's a three... A three-way split screen, which yeah, even now is kind of unusual to see, um, and it's used in a really cool 
you know, it's not just done for like flashiness. It has a very specific storytelling use. Yeah, it's t- telling con- concurrent stories uh, that are happening. And that's what concurrent means. At the but same I mean, time. it's 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 showing on the far left is one person on the phone, the sort of like one of the the heads of the brothel. In the middle is the um, uh, the woman who gets uh, kidnapped and locked in the brothel. Yeah. Um, with I think her mother. Um, and on the right is the like the madam of the brothel, who is talking on the phone to the other guy, on the left side of the screen. But what they're talking mm-hmm. about is the woman in the middle. Oh. Screen. So it's like. Nice. Yeah. I thought that if was a, a very nice, like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's good, it's very efficient use of, of uh, screen space, I guess. Nice. Uh, yeah, I was pretty impressed by that. I don't know if it was in the original movie that it was knocking off, but if it wasn't, then maybe their claims were not so uh, yeah. Over, overblown. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did also see, uh, I forgot where I read it, but the apparently the poster on IMDb and on Letterboxd is from the original film, uh, not ah. this one. Hmm. So well, I'll put that poster in the video version if you're watching <laughs> on uh, on YouTube. Um, uh, and I guess we we got some the usual potpourri of potpourri other weird movies that came out. Yeah, I will say you know Chamon kind of um, dropped off the map today uh, th- this 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 year. Um, he has one movie, I think, that survives from 1910. It's kind of a simple trick film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he spent 1910 moving back to Spain. Um, hmm. And he uh, he was trying to form his own film company, but he was working with Pathé the entire time. And I think he ended up just going back with Pathé, Pathé after his film company fizzled. But uh, like Melies, uh, Chomon was... Uh, a little more occupied with other things and Guy Blachet. Um, but we've got a, we've got a fun, uh, a fun, like wacky sci-fi movie from some unknown director at Gaumont, um, called police in the year 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Which is what it sounds like. It is a film set in the year 2000. Made in nineteen ten. This is like, yeah, retrofuturism. Yeah. You know? um, well, back then, it was, all... back then it was just futurism. They didn't know about <laughs> Do you... they didn't know about computers and boy bands back then. They were like the police will be in airships with long, long pin- pincher sticks to arrest people <laughs> with. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. They've... <laughs> The the police are basically like dog cha- chasers <laughs> operating out of or dog catchers operating out of the uh, uh, police state zeppelins. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like this is a comedy movie. It's being very, it's very zany. It's very, it's very fun to watch. Very silly. It's also kind of depicting like a fascist police state. Yeah, in in a, in a um, very sort of silly, funny. I mean, yeah. There was in my notes. I have do police arrest dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know, while the police are doing all these, uh, you know, overreach of law enforcement, they they have funny propeller hats on. <laughs> yeah. 
it feels very Hanna Barbera. Uh, this this short. It it does. Yeah. Uh, very very Looney Tunesian. <laughs> Looney Tunesian. <laughs> um. There was uh, another kind of fun like sci-fi sci-fi air based film i guess yes the aerial follow-up to last week yeah the aerial submarine which is also directed by walter r booth who directed the airship destroyer uh 1909 and this is sort of a sort of a spiritual sequel to that in that it Mm -hmm. is about uh fantastical machines uh doing crimes and or or war and or war um, yeah yeah if, i mean this one as opposed to being about an invasion uh from some unknown country by airship this is about uh submarine pirates who have a submarine that can also fly <laughs> it's yeah it's super super steampunk uh a lot of fun i put on well, as soon i was putting on like the the same sort of steampunk music that I put on for uh, Airship Destroyer last week, and um, and as soon as it said like Sky Pirates, I was like, never mind, I'm putting on the Porco Rosa soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's it's this definitely isn't as it did it did remind me of uh, Melies a bit as a lot of Walter Arbuth stuff has. It's these fanciful trick film um, people from the early yeah. era. And it's definitely not as like polished or slick or sort of it doesn't have quite the production value that Emilier's film does. No. But it has it just has so much cool shit in it. <laughs> yeah. Um I have in my notes nothing DW Griffith does can possibly compete with the title card The Pirates Torpedo the Liner to secure the treasure. <laughs> Cause it's just like, come on. How could he? Yeah. yeah, and then you see that happen, and you see like a model ship sinking, and there's a bunch of really cool like effect shots. There's a shot on the deck of the ocean liner that they sink, where you see like the the ocean behind them. That is a double exposure shot. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, and yeah, just like flying submarine chase. It's it's great. Yeah, like the the army sends their the sort of plot of the film is there's like uh. Uh, a man and his girlfriend or wife are like, on the beach and they see a submarine and they're just like, hey, let's go check out this submarine. <laughs> and so then the pirates kidnap them and they're they're on board the submarine for this whole chase. You say, you say that in a mocking voice, but I would definitely, if I saw a submarine, just go check it out, I, right? I mean, I probably would too, you're right. <laughs> um, especially in 1910. Um, yeah. But uh, there, was a, um, there was a third film in this dif- sort of loose trilogy which is now lost from well, is it lost the one from 1911 from 1911 oh um, no called the aerial anarchists and i was really I, excited to see that what i would not <laughs> give to watch that but that one does not survive um this actually is the only one that i think survives in its entirety because a lot of airship destroyer was lost um but, airship destroyed ah what a what a film. Um, it's a lot of fun. That film... And it shows film being developed in, in the movie. There's yeah. Like a, there's like a part where the they're trying to... The cops are trying to capture the pirates, 
and so they they use their forensic evidence and they they take it they take the 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 photo that the couple shot of the submarine and develop it in a lab and you're watching like this kind of plate uh this glass plate with the photo get washed around in the chemical solution very uh cool seeing that process yeah um Aerial Submarine was produced by a guy named Charles Urban, who is a sort of up-and-coming producer, I guess, from this time period, who also produced a bunch of... Um, and his sort of main claim to fame, I think, was producing like nature documentaries and nature films, um, most of which were directed by a guy named F. Percy Smith, who directed a film from this year called The Birth of a Flower, which yeah. is... I think we've seen time lapse before, but not. Yeah, we like saw this. the building up and destroying of the right. th- or the destroying of the theater. Um, um, this whole film is just time lapses of flowers growing and blooming, but that's always cool to see. Yeah, regardless of when and, it was filmed. It yeah, I mean that's. Cool. It's kind of funny, you know. We're talking about all these movies of like, oh, is it boring? Does it hold up? You know, but. Just watching a flower bloom for like two two days of a of a of a flower blossoming in in time lapse it always looks cool always. you know yeah um, uh, but I don't think time lapse had ever been done in this way really before to like follow the growth no, of something or I imagine this must have required a lot of really specific new equipment mm-hmm. like invented for this movie um, it doesn't show up in this movie but F Percy Smith also did a bunch of early stuff filming underwater and like building underwater camera, like camera housings and like things to like hmm. stick cameras into the water, which at that time I'm sure it was like, that's crazy. You can't stick a camera into the water. Like, what are you right. Doing? But he was like, no, I need to see the fish. Um, F Percy Smith, the, um, the progenitor of the GoPro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's. I found out there's a whole article on Atlas Obscura, which is a, a good website um, about his his nature filmmaking. Oh, neat! I didn't, I'll have to check um, that out. L- link that to me so I can uh, put it in the description. Yeah, will do. Um, um, there was also a really weird Wizard of Oz movie that we don't have much to say about. <laughs> yeah, it was the first Wizard of Oz movie, um, but uh, well, I mean, to well, debatable. <laughs> Yeah, to link it back to what we were talking about with the Frankenstein movie, it is interesting to see, like, the 1930s Wizard of Oz movie is so famous and so iconic, kind of. Yes. And this is before that one, and so it is very different and much worse <laughs> in this case. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's it's just, it's it's crazy to see a completely different take on this material from so, from so much earlier. Um. Just because we're so used to seeing, even like new takes on the Wizard of Oz are like inevitably kind of getting filtered through this lens of, of the R- Judy Garland movie. Yeah, yeah. And this is like no songs, a bunch of weird farm animals played by people in costumes. Um, Toto gets transformed by Glinda into a giant dog to fight the Cowardly Lion. I will say the only thing that I f- that felt familiar to me about this was the scarecrow physical acting. Mm. Um I I think that um maybe it's just the natural way that you would assume a scarecrow moves. Um <laughs> how else but... would a scarecrow move? I mean <laughs> <laughs> Um I don't know, ask a Cillian 
Murphy. Ah. Uh, Did I get that reference right? I wasn't actually sure. I wasn't yes. confident going into yes. that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it was fine. It was whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oz looks like Florida. Oz is very tropical in this film. The, the Wicked yeah. Witch's name is Mamba. I didn't make a note. Mamba. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's there's a bunch of wire work in this movie, which is kind of interesting. We haven't seen a lot of that. Hmm. Um, are people jumping or flying around? Which was a oh, was a yeah. existing stage thing, which I'm sure is where they are taking it from. But we haven't really, we haven't seen right. it show up in a lot of films just yet. It does feel like like pretty theatrical. I think you were mm-hmm. saying that um, it seems like it was pretty inspired by a stage show of yeah, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I think it's it's more based on a 1902 stage production of The Wizard of Oz than it is on the uh, the original book. Hence a lot of the weird like seeming seeming non sequiturs in this in this version of it. Right. And and I mean also like a number of movies based on existing properties from this time, it's this like pastiche that doesn't actually tell its own story. Um mm-hmm. it uh, it's just sort of like it scenes from assumes a thing that you, that know. you know. Yeah, it assumes that you know the original work, uh, and so it's just eye candy for those people. Yeah. Um, you have anything else on Wonderful Wizard of Oz? I don't think I do. Well, do you have a favorite film from this year? If we're uh, how am I gonna forget this again? Yes, favorites at the end of the podcast. My favorite was. You know, I really loved Max gets a Max takes a bath, but I think my favorite has got to be um, the, the abyss? abyss. The abyss. I think mm. the abyss is so so good. It, it seems so ahead of its time, and I I was really I was really engaged when I was watching it. I was re- really wrapped up in it. Yeah, um, it's very good. I mean, I I kind of hate to do it, but at the same time, it's like I do think. I gotta say, Aerial Submarine, just because it's so. I was just pure <laughs> pure joy the whole time. So, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Of uh, the one that definitely just got me to smile the most. <laughs> uh, Max takes a bath. Is pretty honorable high up there mention. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Aerial Submarine just to because I have to stay on brand. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah. Uh, well, if you would like to give us an honorable mention in your Instagram story, you can tag us uh, on Instagram at one week one year, which I just kind of got that going. Um, <laughs> uh, just post the album art, and I'll post you know a little bit of project- production stuff when I remember to do it. Uh, but yeah, BTS, BTS. Yeah. Um, well, anyway. Check out our Instagram, follow us on Twitter. All of the links to those things are in the description of either the YouTube that you're watching right now or the podcast that you're listening to right now. Uh, And come back and see us in 1911. Making our way into this next decade, we're sure to see some interesting stuff. And with that, Glenn, I will see you next year. See you next time.